Hey everyone, welcome to episode 35 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Chai Nyo Chong, the former managing director of IBM Malaysia with over 30 years in the IT industry and current independent director at Holium Financial Group and Bursa Malaysia. Chai was appointed to the role of MD in 2015, becoming the first woman to helm the company in its 57-year history in Malaysia, was awarded the CEO Champion Award by Talent Corp in 2015, and recognized by the Malaysian Business Publication as one of Malaysia's Women of Influence in April 2018. In this episode, we discuss how she ended up in the computer science field, how she excelled in her career, her thoughts on how to handle sabbaticals and staying relevant while not working, the difference in attitude she's observed between men and women when opportunities arise, and her advice for women in advancing in their careers. But before we begin, if you have been enjoying this show and you want to find an easy way to support it, please leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help others to find the show and I would really appreciate it. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I have two brothers, three sisters. Of course, including myself, six. One of my sisters, she's my twin sister. Our upbringing was very much influenced by my father, by and large. He is actually a trade unionist and uh, he believes in fighting for the underprivileged. He would talk to us about collective bargaining. And I guess I learned those words at a very young age because he would talk to us about helping people who couldn't help themselves and all that. He was a municipal councillor. He would go to the wet market and see people selling vegetables or fish on the untucked road. So when it rains, it's wet. So he would make it a point to write their case to the ministry, asking them for help. And then he would make sure drains are unclogged. When I was young, a lot of people would come to my house. They would tell him that my license is being revoked. And then a lot of them cannot write in English. Some of them cannot write in Malay. They don't know how to appeal. So he would write appeals for them. Against that kind of backdrop, my father, who loves science and mathematics and all that. My entire family grew up with a passion for mathematics. Weekends, we will do mathematical quiz. So there are six of us. The elder three will be competing with each other. The younger three will be competing. Then you have some prizes there. So you put like piles of coins. So if you are number one, you get the highest pile. So the three of us will compete. And all six of us are very good at mathematics. We were very familiar with trigonometry, with calculus, with algebra at a very young age. To us, it was fun. Nobody told us otherwise. And I think my father was also very gender agnostic. He told us at a very young age, there's no distinction between daughters and sons. All I asked of you is to give your best. So you can choose whatever career you want, but you have to give your best. And he was true to his words. I did computer science. One of my younger sisters uh, did mechanical engineering. My brother has a PhD in mechanical engineering. I have another brother who did physics. And then my other sister's an accountant. So she's the only non-science. Your choice to take on computer science at University of Science Malaysia. How did that come about? Well, to be honest with you, I wanted to do architecture because there is an art and science aspect of it. I actually applied to NUS. During that period, they kind of sequenced your results according to the courses. If your results are good, they will give you accountancy, not architecture. When I applied to NUS, maybe my results was among the better ones. And they actually offered me accounting. I bought with the idea like accounting. I mean, like so boring. I don't want to do accounting. So I told them I don't want to do accounting. And at the same time, I had an opportunity to go to USM for computer science. When I told them I don't want to do accounting, they actually offered me architecture. But only problem is in Singapore at that time, the first three years, they give you Bachelor of Arts. 
And then you have to go out and do some training. And then you got to apply again for another three years to do architecture. So I thought about it. I said, wow, looks like seven years, you know. I mean, it's a long time. I don't think I want to be studying seven years. I'm not even sure if I apply when I come back, will I even get into architecture? Else I'll be ending up with a Bachelor of Arts, which was not what I wanted. So anyway, finally, after much thought, I'll do computer science. At that point in time, computer science is not as hot as it is today, honestly. And nobody really knew where it was going. Everyone thought computer science like mathematics, like applied science. Like, you know, I applied uh, mathematics. So I said, okay, fine, it's a new course. It's quite close to mathematics. I'll do it. So that was why I decided to go for a computer science degree in USM. And I didn't know any better. Honestly, who knew 35 years ago or 40 years ago where IT is going to hit? Is it going to be as pervasive as it is today? So after you graduated, do you have any plans in terms of what you wanted to do? I always thought that I would do something technical. So I was very clear upon graduation, I will go into a job that will allow me to realize the creative aspect of computer science. When I was in university, I conscientiously look out for jobs that will give me this ability to, to create, to develop. So I started my career as a software development engineer on the plant floor in Penang. And I kind of enjoyed it because I've been interviewing people, asking them, so what, what do you want to do? Then they say, oh, we want to automate this or that. And then I said, okay, okay, let me go back and think. So it was so exciting because you took the logic. How do you write this program? At that point, it was so basic compared to today. And then you'll be thinking, so when the script pops up, what does the user see? Which button they press? Not like now, you know, all graphics. But it was so exciting because you have so much control over all the various components. What you want the screen to look like? What's the logic? I'll be like debugging for hours. I go home, I sleep. Three o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up. I said, I know the answer. I know where the problem is. I didn't live that far away from the plant. I actually drove to the plant at the middle of the morning. Because those days, no computer at home. So whatever programming you do, you have to do it in the office. So I actually drove like early in the morning because suddenly it's like, oh, brainwave. So I drove all the way to the factory, go and do all my debugging, you know. And I will tell you, those were exciting days. But what happened was that after a year plus in the manufacturing plant, I realized that the plant is where the frontliners are the engineers. Because they are the ones that produce the product. They are the ones that test it. They are the ones that quality control it. So if you are not an engineer, if you are software development, you are considered back office. You are not a profit center, you are a cost center. I realized from a career point of view, I'm not going to go very far if I stay in that organization. Because it is a plant, rightly so. The engineers are the frontliners. So it gives me this kind of a thought process. Where you go in your career, you have to decide, are you going to be a frontliner? It means you bring back the bacon or you're going to be a support function. So you have to decide now very clearly. I was in a support function. I realized that if I really want to progress my career in this organization, I've got to be at the front, but I'm not an engineer. So that was when I decided to leave uh, the company and I went to look for a job in sales. So that was when I went to sales organization because I thought might as well go to the front line where I'm actually selling related products or services rather than supporting. So then I went to sales. I decided I don't want to do hard selling. I want to do, they call it technical selling. I'm an engineer supporting the sales rep. So it was a progression from support function to frontline, but not front front, you know, one step behind. I didn't know that I was going to face a job that I thought was so exciting, but not frontliner, to a job that is in the frontline, but unfortunately, the department I went in was a... They call it a PC and peripheral division. So PC and peripheral, you have to understand that technology changes very quickly. So let's say I've been in that division for two years. It doesn't make me better than someone who's there for six months because the technology is new. So I realized that I should go into a field where there is a lot more longevity. That means the technology I learn, as time goes by, whatever I pick up, I become an expert. That means there will be, I call it high barrier to entry. Anybody coming in have to go through the same path. So at that point, this was 30 years ago, I realized that 
I was in a field where the change was so quick that I will not be an expert even if I stayed there for 10 years, which is true. So luckily, I understood that and I decided to leave the company and go on to IBM. IBM was a little bit different because when you first come in, they don't put you into any stream first. They put you through a training program. As you go through the training program, they assess your inclination. So if you're inclined towards technical, they put you in technical. If you're inclined towards sales, they put you into sales. And sales and technical has got different degrees of sales and technical. At that point in time, IBM was the biggest IT company and I felt like that was my dream. You know? I always wanted to join IBM. So when I went in, I wanted to do a technical role, which I always thought I'll be technical. So when I came in, I was interviewed and then they gave me the job and I came in as an associate systems engineer. About a month into the job, the country MD at that time called me and said that you don't look like a technical person to me. Your profile is a salesperson. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm a technical person. So I completely refused to go to a sales job. Then he said, okay, fine. Uh, let's put you in marketing. So it was very interesting. I said, let's put you in marketing because sales and, and technical, the career path and the development path are a totally different path already. So after six months in marketing, I wasn't happy because all my peers have gone on to develop their skills. And I'm like, Stuck in the middle. So I went back to the MD. I say, hey, look, you know, you're not being fair to me. I want to do technical. I applied to be technical. And now I'm stuck in between neither one. So I said, okay, okay. Finally, I said, okay, going to technical. Since you're technical. So it put me back. Okay, you go to the technical path. Then six months after that, I realized why the MD wanted me to do sales. Similar to when I was in the plant, the guys who call the shots, the king is actually the sales rep. So when you are in a sales and distribution company, the king is the salesperson. If you want to call the shots, you have to be the salesperson. If you are a technical person, you are playing a supporting role. So I was like, oh my God, I didn't expect that. And after six months, I went back to the MD and I said, look, I think you're right. I'm not very happy because I can't call the shots. I can't drive things. I'm actually always supporting, even though I was so-called frontline. So it wasn't quite front enough. So then he said, okay, fine. I switched and moved into a sales career. And it all happened within my first two years in, in IBM. And then I think from then onwards, my career took off in many different shapes and forms. And I was very fortunate because, I mean, I didn't even have to apply for anything. Every step of the way, somebody will call me and say, hey, there's this job, do you want this job? Never have to apply for anything. Were there any particular landmarks in your career that allowed all these opportunities to just come to you? I'm sure they didn't come to you just because you were lucky. One of the most important things I think that shaped my career was work ethics and your drive. Starting from university, I would not be afraid to go up to my lecturers and ask for extra classes because I missed something or I didn't understand something. So it is that willingness to go up and say, look, I need help and can you help me? I would be very, some people will call it OCD. I was very focused on delivering everything that I committed to. So if I say that this is a deadline and I'm going to deliver on this deadline, even if I don't sleep for three days, I will still deliver on a deadline. And I think this is characteristic of fulfilling your commitment has become a trademark, I believe, that has brought me a lot of opportunities. I have many bosses in my career that tells me that if I pass a job to you, I can sleep well at night because I know it will be taken care of. My father always say, you always give your best. Sometimes it may not meet the standard, but sometimes it does. But the point is that you have given your best and you are at peace because you've given your best. Secondly, is drive because at the end of the day, if you don't have the persistence and the drive to make things happen, you will give up along the way. You cannot expect things to be smooth all the time. There will be a lot of roadblocks and you need to mentally be prepared to overcome these roadblocks. The necessity, that resilience, the persistence that will help you overcome. A lot of times it is not physical or anything. It's actually mental. You think you cannot do it. That's why you cannot do it. Sometimes I have very difficult times and I say it's mind over matter. I tell myself it's mind over matter, mind over matter. If I don't sleep for a few days or I sleep very little over three days and I'm tired and I got to present, 
the first thing I tell myself is mind over matter. So you try very hard to set your mind in the right direction. I think that's very important. And am I right in saying around 2007, that was the first time that you were asked to consider becoming the CEO of IBM, but you turned it down at the time? Yeah, IBM Malaysia. So in year 2000, one of my bosses, he came back to Malaysia and he became the MD of IBM Malaysia. So at that point in time, I was supporting him because I worked with him for a long time. And he was one of the bosses who always say that if I give you anything, I'll sleep well at night because I know you'll take care of it. So of course, he has been encouraging me and kind of grooming me and say, hey, you know, uh, think about it, think about it. You should think about on this role. My kids were growing up. At that point, I was doing a few roles. I already felt that giving my best and giving my all was already taking a lot of time away from my kids. And my kids were growing up. 2007, my kids were about like 10, 12 years old, you know, that kind of age. So then I thought about it. I said, do I really want the job? Because I look at him and he really worked hard. Uh, of course, his wife supported him. So he always said that I'm fortunate because I leave everything to my wife. I said, yeah, but I can't leave it to my husband. You know, he got his own career. So if I were to take on this role, I'm going to do that role. Plus, I'm going to take care of him. So I thought about it. I said, I don't think I am ready for it. I, I thought about it. I said, do I want to take time away from my family? I'm already taking a lot of time away, to be honest, at that point. I was already like working in the office 11, 12, 12 at night. My boss was like, typically in IBM, people become MD for IBM Malaysia or any of the IBM organizations. Typically, four years, five years, they will actually ask you to groom someone to take over. So he was already like six, seven years in the job. I remember it was four or five years, or 2005. So they started talking to me about it. And I keep saying, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for that. And at that point in time, if you ask me why I said I was not ready, I always put, so, oh, because of my family, I want to spend time with kids and I don't want them to grow up with me away so much. But actually, after a few years after that, when I think back, that was not the real reason. That was the obvious reason. But the real reason why I think I was resistant was I was afraid of failure. You're probably the first to hear this because I don't talk about this. I was afraid that if they gave me something that I was not 110% ready, I would fail. And I cannot accept that. You know, I grew up as a perfectionist. My father said excellence, I am a perfectionist. So, you know, I was trying to be perfect. So actually what my father is saying is excellence, be the best. Perfection is different. Perfection is unattainable. So at that point in time, in my mind, I thought, if I take this job now, of course, I cannot give 100% of my time because I have to think about my family. So first of all, I don't even have that luxury of giving 100% of myself. Secondly, is what if I fail? I think this part about the failure did not surface at that time. I didn't think that I was afraid of failure. But later on, when I look back, I realized that that was a very big factor. I was afraid to fail. So what would you have done differently then with all this knowledge? Would you have been willing to just be the CEO? Actually, to be honest, probably not. And the reason behind that is that when I took the role in 2015, I found that the role was bigger, deeper, more complex than I ever saw. Even though I was working side by side, the MD at that time, the depth, the emotional impact of decisions you make was a lot deeper, you know. I didn't even see it. But I realized that when I took the job in 2015, I think if I had been less mature, if I had taken the role 10 years earlier, I think I would not have done a good job. I could still take on the job, be given the title, do the job for five years and then move on. Now, I felt that doing it in 2015, I was more mature. I obviously had a lot, 10 years more experience. I felt like I contributed a lot more to the people. It was a people thing. It wasn't the numbers. I felt that I was mature enough to handle a lot of emotional situations where you have to fire people, where you have to reorganize. We have to select leaders and deselect others. Those are not easy decisions because you are actually impacting a person's life. 
And when you have to deal with non-performance, for example, the impact when you are growing up in an organization and you're younger, non-performance and the ability to shift around, change jobs and all that, you're a lot more fluid, more flexible. So I realized that even though I could have done a job 10 years before that, taking the job in 2015 gave me a different ability to build different kinds of value to the people and organization. And I wonder between 2005-2015, you actually took two sabbaticals. The first time was in 2010. Did that contribute to you becoming the person that was ready to become CEO? Yes, I would say yes, to a very large extent. Until I took the sabbatical, you almost feel like you talk to a lot of people who are progressing in their careers. They almost felt like they have no choice. They feel like, oh, I'm on this treadmill, right? I'm running, running, running. The treadmill stops. I will roll back, climbing up. So I had that same uh, mindset during my maternity leave. I actually went back to work almost immediately after I delivered. So I remember after I delivered my daughter, three days after that, I arrived home. I was so bored, I had nothing to do. I took out my computer and started working, you know, started to reply mails. And after the obligatory confinement, after the first month, people came to my house. I remember we were working on some campaigns and all that. It was almost like you were so afraid to leave in case you can't pick up again. So when I decided to take a sabbatical, it was a very difficult decision. But I think circumstances at that point required it because my kids, they were beyond physical care. They needed someone to talk to. You know, they are deciding on their careers. You know, like, where do I go? Do I go for science? Do I go for arts? What kind of skills should I be developing? So I felt like I wasn't there for them because even though they're talking to you and you're doing your work, it's like, okay, 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 okay. You know, you're on a con call and they call you, mommy, and they talk to you. And my son was going through quite a difficult time. He was searching for himself. He was having a lot of mood swings and he was very unhappy in school. He would come back crying. So I was very disturbed. I'm thinking, like, what's going on? For all the success I have in my career, I'm not there for my kids. So I thought really hard about it. And also my husband actually played a very big role when I was progressing in my career. So he left a corporate job to do his own business so that he could be at home for the kids. He was always the one bridging. When I travel, he will bridge. On and off, when I'm overseas for a long period, he will arrange for us to have a con call. I will talk to them. And my husband's business to call. So he was traveling. I was traveling. And I was really very uncomfortable with the whole situation. So I told my husband, look, I think you should focus on your business. And since you have already sacrificed so much, go and do what you need to do while I take a break and let's see how it turns out. So I decided to take a year's sabbatical. Now suddenly you're out of this tornado. Then you are in a place where you can look at the tornado rather than being in it. And then a lot of things start to make sense. See, first thing I realized that a lot of people think that you are your job. You are your title. You are not. You are your title only when you're in the job. The moment you step out, like for me, I became a mom, stay-at-home mom. This whole thing about me being a successful career woman, it just goes away, it disappeared. And then you realize that all these people that you were so busy engaging with, you're no longer in a position where you are relevant, you're totally irrelevant. Even having conversations, you know, you go for tea, coffee, whatever, you know, the first one, two meetings, you got things to talk about. After that, what is that to talk? So a very important realization for me was you have to separate yourself from your job. If you think you are the job, the moment that job goes away, your entire world will fall apart. But I had a good fortune to take a step out. That means it was a pilot, like, testing. I still have a job to go back to later, but testing, you know. You got to be clear about your own self-worth. Be very clear about what experience, what value you can contribute. Forget about the job. You as a person, what have you acquired? What type of skills, what type of knowledge, whatever experience have you acquired? What am I worth without my title? What am I worth? Do you mind sharing how you rated yourself in terms of what am I worth without the title at that point in time? Well, I'll be honest, the first sabbatical, right, I was taken aback 
Because suddenly, it's first time, never did it before. First time was like, I mean, I'm no longer relevant because you, you don't have nothing to discuss. So I was taken aback. I wasn't sure, you know, like, what am I really worth? I'm not sure. Even though I took a sabbatical, would I be going back to a good job? Or when I go back, nobody wants me? I wasn't sure. Anyway, to be honest, at that point, I was quite tied up with my kids. And at the same year, my late father contracted cancer. You know, I remember because in 2010 April, I actually supposed to leave January. But I left in April because they wanted me to hand over the role to someone who was from Hong Kong to do the job. So I was hand-holding the guy for three months. So if, effectively, I only took my sabbatical April 1st. So April 1st, my father con- uh, was diagnosed with cancer in, I think, April, probably May or June. And he had to go through some major operation and all that. And he actually passed away in September. So all that happened in 2010. Suddenly you realise the importance of real engagement with your kids. Really being there, send them to school, chit-chat with them. People talk about, it's okay, you know, if I spend only the weekends with the kids, it is not the amount of time that matters. It's the quality of the time. People always tell you that. Actually, it's not true. Because when you are distracted, I found that there was a big difference not working and giving the kids attention versus weekends. I felt like I was back in their life again, not out of it. I was very fortunate because uh, IBM kept calling me up and saying, hey, look, there's this job you want it. So at the end of it, sometime in December, I had three jobs to choose and all three did not compromise my position. I was actually very excited about going back because I was so worried, like I've lost nine months, you know, maybe I won't be relevant, maybe I'm out of touch, you know, my mind's a bit rusty. After I went back to work about one and a half years, I took my second sabbatical. Because my kids, they were stay at home and I realized that this nine months sabbatical wasn't enough. We were engaging, but I keep getting distracted. And by the way, the job I took required me to travel. So I'll be traveling three countries in one week. This job is regional, directly to global. That means I don't even have an ASEAN, Asia-Pacific, nothing. I was the ASEAN head of this organization, which report directly to global. So I found myself on calls late at night. And then I found that because it was a small organization, almost like a startup, something very new. I had to get involved myself. I will fly from Malaysia to Hanoi. From Hanoi, I will fly to Manila. From Manila, I will fly to Singapore, and then I fly back to Malaysia. And then after about a year plus, I realized that I started to lose engagement with my kids again because you are traveling, traveling, traveling. Sometimes I would call home, and my husband was traveling also. I would call home and I would ask my son, I said, hey, so today what did you all have for dinner? And he said, oh, I didn't have anything for dinner. I'm like, why? Well, because my, my daughter and my husband, they want to eat at the clubhouse and I don't feel like clubhouse food, so I didn't eat. Some days you call my daughter said, I'm going to sleep now, why? I decided not to have dinner. Why? Because my son decided to order pizza and I don't eat pizza. And then I remember one time I called and my kids were crying. And the reason was because their pet turtle died and they were crying nonstop. And I was overseas. I told myself, maybe it's not the right time I should go back to be with them. This time I decided to leave IBM. I said, okay, forget it. I'm not going to take a sabbatical. I'm leaving IBM because I really don't know how long this is going to go on. And to be fair to the organization, you can't just go in and out, you know. Please, you know, you have responsibility. My boss at the time, she's the head of ASEAN. She said, we offer you the sabbatical, you take it. So she insisted, you take the sabbatical, do not leave IBM. And this sabbatical was longer, close to two years maybe. I decided that I will not be totally cut off from the organization. I offered free services to IBM to say that I will come in and do mentoring, mentor, even though maybe not a lot, but still you don't totally cut off. So as long as you're in touch and you're doing something, you're relevant, number one. Number two, the fact that you're keeping in touch, you don't lose sight of what is happening or developing in the industry. So in a way, I felt like the second time around, I was more prepared, I was more organized, and I did not exclusively decide to stay at home. I went out and do things. So I think that made a lot of difference. 
And you were saying that while you were at home, you wanted to make sure you were kept abreast of what's happening in the industry. But it's such a fast-moving industry. So what kind of things or questions were you asking the people you were in contact with to make sure that I know what's happening, this is the new development, and I can go home and read up so that I'm aware of it? See, the second sabbatical and the first, even though it's only a span of two years, surprisingly, the technology advancement when I took my second sabbatical was far ahead when it comes to social media. So I remember in 2010, when I first left IBM, by the way, my boss retired the same time I left. He said, okay, first thing you do is get your own laptop and then, okay, let's join Facebook, join all the various social media. 2010, you know, that was the first time actually I joined. So I joined all these social media because we always had our own email system. I tell you, I was struggling the first time I was looking at the email system. I don't know what to use because I'm so used to the IBM email system. All the outside one looks so primitive. So of course, this was 2010. When I came back to work in IBM January 2011, immediately I said, I don't want the IBM laptop. I will buy my own. So in fact, when I left IBM, that device I have is my own. It's not IBM's device. So I don't feel so cut off. The first time I was totally cut off because when, when IBM took back the laptop, I bought a new one. The interface was so different. I was struggling. I couldn't use. Also, the job I took was IBM Intellectual Property Development. I actually interact with a lot of researchers and scientists in the US. All of them have their own MacBook. I decided to get a MacBook. Until today, I still use a MacBook. So in 2012 and 2010, very different world. Two years, you know, the social media is so much more matured. All the devices are so much available. The Gmail and email or whatever mails are all so much more developed. So the second time around was much easier. I have my own MacBook, no new interfaces. Number two, all this social media thing, even though I left IBM, I already had a network. Today, everybody is connected. But this was 2010. So then you came back and you were client director for banking and financial markets before you became the managing director of IBM. And you mentioned earlier that you were battling with feelings of inferiority, that you're not good enough. So how did you overcome that and decide that, okay, now is the time I'm ready to be the MD? I always believe that different profiles will suit different jobs. I'm not an extremely extroverted person, so I don't enjoy doing the sound and dance on stage. I prefer to stay in the background. I remember my ASEAN boss came to Malaysia and he said to me, a leader has to be seen. I know you don't like the stage. I know you don't like to be in the limelight, but you cannot be a leader if you're not seen. People need to see you. They need to be inspired by you. He said, think about it. Do you really want to progress up the leadership path in IBM? If you don't want to, I'm fine with it because I love you doing what you're doing. You perform, you, you deliver, and you can stay on in this role forever. But don't be upset if someone less capable than you get promoted ahead of you because you choose not to be visible. So that was really a reckoning of sort because I thought about it and say he's correct. Would I be able to look up to a leader that's not visible? I can't even see the person. The person don't even want to be there for me to see. Then I realized that I have to make a decision. Do I want to be in the limelight? Do I want to be in a position where people look up to you? You are visible, like it or not. And I, I thought hard about it and I said, okay, let me take small steps. Let me try. So I said, okay, the first step you do is I will give you a role that will report to me directly and I want you to take your seat in my leadership team. He was in Singapore and this position that he gave me, you have to relocate to Singapore. I have a discussion with my husband and I really want to be with my family. So he accepted it, you know. He said, okay, fine, but you have to fly in. So I remember for nine months, Monday morning, I fly to Singapore. I stay in Singapore until Friday. Friday, I come back. So I went on to sit on his leadership team, met a lot of people, learned a lot, you know, observed all the different personalities. And then I realized that 
actually to be a leader, you don't need to be boxed into a certain personality. I mean, I'm not the song and dance type. I'm not the kind that likes to socialize. And I'm also not the kind you just have to say something. Whether there's meaning or no meaning, you just have to say something. I can't. If the content is not meaningful, I, I cannot. So from then on, I was always given a lot of opportunities to take on uh, roles that developed me and gave me opportunities to shine I went on sabbatical, then I came back. This boss, Paul, Paul is an introvert. And he's one of the very few IBM leaders who are introverts. And Paul said, hey, look, I'm not a Malaysian and I'm the MD of IBM Malaysia. I need you to come back because I need someone to really help me because I'm not a Malaysian. So he didn't give me much choice. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure, Paul. I was thinking maybe I should retire. No, 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 you come back. He was like very adamant about it, very persuasive. So anyway, I came back. I said, okay, Paul, I will come back and help you for one year. After that, I will leave. He says, fine. So I came back and I worked alongside him for a year plus. Along the way, he kept telling me, he said, I'm here on a short term because I'm not Malaysian. I'm going to be here just to bridge the gap and to groom a Malaysian for the role. And I want you to take that role. I'm like, not sure, Paul. I'm quite comfortable where I am and all that. There was one thing he said to me, which was really, again, an inflection point. By the way, a lot of women are like this. So when people offer you a job, you always think that, that's it, you know, I have to accept it. Whatever, all the terms attached to it, I have to accept it. But the truth is, when someone offers you a job, you are actually in a position to say, I'm willing to take the job, but I would like this or that. I want something. And I need the environment to be different or whatever. Like, you know? And he was the one who told me that, what are your terms? It's like, you know, I never thought I had terms because I've been IBM for so long. So it's not like I'm going for a new job outside company or whatever. IBM says there's a position. Do you want it? And I've always thought that the position comes with certain responsibilities. So I said, I don't think I would like this job because of A, B, C, D, E or tell him all the reasons. Then he says, what if I tell you this A, B, C, D, E that you have objections to? I will remove them. I'm like, oh, can you do that? Then he started to share with me about himself. And he said that he's an introvert. So he's not the kind that likes to sing and dance. And you always have this perception that to you, for, to be successful in Malaysia, if you are a business leader and to be successful, you got to be socializing out there. Of course, pre-COVID, lah, you know, at night we have to go for drinks, go for dinner, weekends you play golf, whatever. Lah. So whatever you do is always socializing. And then remember, as the MD or CEO of IBM Malaysia, you are the face. So you cannot say, I want to meet clients. You have to meet clients. I mean, that's what you think. Lah. So then he said, I choose to play golf if I want to play golf. I don't play golf because I'm forced to play. You know, because to play is so and so. I'm forced to play because I want to build a relationship. I play golf because I enjoy it. So he doesn't like to socialize for the sake of socializing. Of course, once in a while he does, but it's not like every night. Like my previous bosses, every other night, they are not at home. You know? They are always out there having dinners with clients almost every night. So I built my perception of the role based on what I observed in the past. It was a breath of fresh air that he is doing the role. And by the way, he did a very good job performing in the role on his own terms. It was almost like a wow moment, you know, that, oh, I can actually tell them this is what I want or what I don't want. And I think it changes the whole perspective of doing the job but on your own terms. And to be honest with you, a lot of women face this because why? A lot of us worry about, oh, I want to go home. I have to cook dinner. Like for me, I cook dinner for my family. I'll go home and cook dinner. You know, imagine all nights in a week. Huh? I'm actually out there socializing. How am I going to cook? When I was growing up, right, in, during my era, people are very careful about how they look because they represent the company. You are the face of the company. So I have this perception that, oh, I cannot do this, I cannot do that. So I realized that a lot of these things are perception. There are things you need to be careful about, especially things that are related to ethics. For example, integrity, very important. So I'm not saying those are not important, but we put a lot more barriers than is necessary. And when I speak to a lot of women, I always say that every time you are offered a job, what's the first thing you do? You are probably counting why I shouldn't take the job. And these perceptions and these barriers, you put in front of yourself. 
So I always tell a lot of women, the moment someone offers you something and you put all the why you cannot do, then ask yourself, can I negotiate out of this? So there's a story very interesting about a few months ago, one woman leader I know very well came to me and said that about two, three years ago, she started her own company. They're going to put the company up for financing, and private equity, peer-to-peer financing. And of course, COVID, so the whole business momentum start to uh, become slower. So she said, I was offered a job to be the CEO of one uh, organization, which she is very passionate about. But she said, I don't think I should take it because if I take it, who's going to run my business? I already invested so much, two, three years, and now I'm not at the point of getting financing. And then I moved to another job, which I'm passionate about also. So she was putting this barrier in front of her to say, I shouldn't accept the job because it'd be unfair to my partners and to this business that I built from scratch. The interesting thing is, I asked her one question. I said, can't you hire a professional to run your company? Think about the advantage you will have if you were to be the CEO of this highly regarded organization because her business is not in conflict. And on top of that, her business was a very startup model. So the startup model is quite nimble, not capital heavy. So she said, oh, I never thought about it. So you think I should hire someone to run it professionally and you know, I can be an advisor? So then after she thought about it, she came back and said, I agree with you. I will accept that job and I will hire someone to run my company professionally. We are the ones who stop ourselves from going forward. There are barriers where you put barriers yourself. It's much harder to remove them. Going back to you becoming MD, were you already thinking long-term like, oh, what do I want to leave behind after my tenure as an MD? Again, I'm learning from Paul. He said that, so when people ask him what's your legacy, he said that I want to leave the company in a better shape when I leave as compared to when I came in. When he said that, that resonated with me strongly. And this is again coming back to the point about excellence and perfection. Rather than trying to be a perfectionist and say that these are the numbers, I'm going to achieve this, this, this. So when I took over from Paul, I asked myself, what are my strengths? Let's be realistic. In a company of two, three thousand whatever people, okay, your contribution is, you know, a percentage of the whole. So the question to ask yourself is, what are my strengths? So first of all, I'm a very people person. So I told myself that I want this environment to be a place where people want to work. And I want it to be an environment where we care for each other. So that was one of the things I really worked hard to build that kind of climate. Uh, Until today, a lot of my teammates who left IBM are still there. They always call back and say, you know, it was such a fun time. We work, but we play. There was no uh, compromise on ensuring that we deliver what we committed on. No compromise on excelling and really doing the best we can do. At the same time, we want to create a lot of fun. Uh, One of the things I think is very important is birthdays. I think birthdays are very important. So what I said to my team is that we will celebrate all birthdays. So it's the cascading effect. So for me, I had 25 people reporting to me. My secretary will put all their birthdays in my calendar. So every morning when I open up my calendar, I will know whose birthday is it. Then my secretary will also remind me to make sure that we order cake. You know? So we'll make sure we have cake, we have lunch. It's my responsibility to celebrate the birthdays of my direct reports. All my direct reports are also managers and they are responsible to celebrate their direct reports. And then it's cascading down. So it's so fun because every other day there'll be people singing happy birthday in the office. And then I will see cakes on my table. So we create a kind of environment. I mean, at this point, a lot of us have already moved on to other roles and all that. But I think that holds us back together. We always talk about that camaraderie, that relationship. And until today, 
this team, we are still on WhatsApp together and we are always keeping abreast of each other's progress and all that. So there was this guy, uh, just recently I saw on LinkedIn, someone thank him, he's actually in Singapore. She sent, I think some cookies or food, whatever he sent to his team in Malaysia. So someone wrote in and said, oh, thank you so much. So I commented also, like, I said, oh, wow, it's like from Singapore, make sure that they have got the cookies or food. So then he actually replied back and said, I learned it from my boss. So that was one of the things. Secondly, I wanted to develop a culture of resilience. See, a lot of times when things don't go, we always like to give up. But we are very blessed. We come from a land of plenty. We got natural resources. I mean, how bad are things here? I go to India and I see people on the roadside, people putting babies on the roadside. You see women carrying babies at the back and they're actually doing hard labor. So I want Malaysians to not settle into complacency and settle into comfort zones. We should aspire for excellence. We should develop ourselves, progress intellectually. We have to have that resilience because the, the global market is already open. Today, you are competing with every country around the world. Look inside. Look at ourselves. You know What message are we sending to them? We have to send the message of, you know, we are hungry. You know, we, we will strive. We will drive. But we are always very relaxed and we have an excuse for everything that's not done. Then you will never get the job. Right? So one of the things I really wanted to build at that time was I wanted to build a culture where people really understand that the competition is global. It's not just in Malaysia, it's global. Right? And we aspire to be a world-class organization. Then we need people with a world-class mindset. So really push and drive and educate and encourage take people out, put them in uncomfortable roles, you know, make them try to change the way they work. I think to a large extent, we did quite a lot in terms of repositioning the people uh, in Malaysia. When they started in my team and when they leave the team, they would have grown and developed in leaps and bounds. The legacy has nothing to do with making numbers, doubling our market share. It's about relationships. I always tell people that if you ask me how many medals I won in IBM, how many times I went to this Achievers Club, I cannot remember. But I remember the relationships the people earlier, I was running this organization at ASEAN. I came into the job whole, meaning that I don't have the background. A lot of experienced people in the team and to a large extent, very capable people, but a lot of conflicts. So they were competing and they were really, I call it unhealthy competition. So I took a very strong position where I say teamwork is the most important. If your wavelength does not resonate with the rest of the team, I welcome you to leave the team, number one. Number two, when I make an assessment of your performance, it will be a 360 performance. That means that someone, your subordinate, has an equal chance of rating you as you have of rating them. Third point is when they come to a contention, if let's say you're rated a one, which is the highest level, and you are more senior than the person that you have a conflict with, and you can't resolve your conflict, I will bring your performance down. So I put the responsibility to the most senior person to say that if there's a conflict between two persons, the senior person will be the one that I will put the responsibility on you correct the situation. There was one lady there, very good performer, and I think she had a lot of conflict with some of these senior people. Anyway, she left IBM and I worked very closely with her, tried to develop her and groom her. So she left anyway. Two years later, she actually texted me and said, hey, I want you to know, I'm actually attending this leadership class and they asked me to visualize the kind of leader I want to be and your face came to my mind. I was so touched. That is the legacy. That you made a difference in someone's life. You made an impact. Big or small, but you made an impact and it's a positive one. And just tagging onto the idea of legacy, I understand that you were also putting into play a succession plan and you invited five males and five emails to come in and ask, can I groom you to be my successor? So I wonder if you could share a bit about how you narrowed down to those 10 people and your plans in grooming them to become the potential next CEO. 
I mean, I had 25 direct reports. So it was already a limited pool. Lah. From this group of 25, who would be uh, ready one job away? Lah. Because when I leave, this person must step in. So you cannot find someone very young, two, three jobs away, you can't. So in the succession planning, you have to have one job. So in IBM, it's very structured. You got one job away, two job away, three jobs away. To start off with, there's a limited pool. So you bring out all those people who are one job away. When I came in, I said, if I plan to be here three, four years, I have to start now. I told my HR director, give me names. So these are the 10. So I said, let me speak to them. So get them in one by one. And I asked this question. So do you want my job? The five guys that I spoke to answers yes. Very simple. Yes. Again, back to the women putting barriers in front of themselves. All the reasons why they shouldn't take the job. Whereas the men say, forget about the barriers. I will deal with the barriers. Give me the job. If you want something, you must ask for it. Don't assume that it will be given to you. And I can tell you, in my years as a manager, as a leader in IBM, very few. In fact, I will say no woman has ever come to me and say, give me a salary increase. Not even one. But men, every other week, I will someone come in and say, hey, my salary, yeah, you know, not high enough. I will tell you, most women, they don't think about asking for salary increase. But men, they will ask for salary increase. Now, if you ask me, there are a lot of complicated reasons. Lah. Maybe they are breadwinners. Maybe they need to bring home. You know, they have to support family. I, I don't know. Maybe most of the women, husbands, uh, the main breadwinner. I don't know. But it cannot be, right? I mean, I'm sure there are some women who are breadwinners as well. From your experience, what is the best way for someone to approach and ask for a salary increase? See, you're asking the wrong person because <laughs> I never asked for salary increase. <laughs> I think the first thing you have to do is, again, going back to the value you bring. You, if you feel that you are contributing a lot and you think that how you are paid is not proportionate to your contribution, I think you should bring it up for discussion. Now, it's not easy because of our culture. Culturally, it's very hard for me to go to my boss and say, I don't think I'm paid correctly. Again, it's very individual because I'm actually a very factual person. So meaning that if I ever do it, I will do some study first. So for example, if I have a job offer from outside, that's the easiest one. And the person outside is willing to pay me 50% more. Then I will go and talk to my boss and say that, am I worth the 50% more to you? Now, to be honest with you, there are people who come and ask for extra 50%, but the contribution does not commensurate. So I know of many instances, the managers will come to me and say, look, so-and-so has got an offer outside for 50% more. Then I ask, do you want to pay him or her 50% more? And sometimes the manager say, no, I don't want to. So you see, that's the point here is the balance between knowing your worth. And if an external party is willing to take you, you also have to weigh the other aspects of it, like how risky is a job? Have you oversold yourself? So I always tell people in my 30 years in IBM, I think I had probably between 15 to 18 jobs, which means on average less than two years. And it's not because I choose to leave jobs come. And it was, I feel, oh, good learning. Huh? I can learn something. Then I take on, I take on, I take on. So I had that opportunity. Now, if you ask me, was I correctly paid when I was in IBM? I didn't think about it. But looking back, I think probably I could have gotten better pay lah, if I asked for it. But I didn't. You really got to be clear about your words. Lah. I think that's very important. But benchmarking is a bit difficult because even in the same organization, people don't want to talk about how much they're paid, let alone going out and asking other people. How much oh, no, it's very easy. Got glass door. Why? There's so many sites that you can go on and you can actually do some information from the website. Secondly, be very open to opportunities. That means that if let's say, hey, Hunter, call you, go. Go for an interview and then find out about it. See, I honestly, in my 30 years in IBM, I probably was not even willing to go and meet hunters. Maybe two times or three times, but I was not willing to meet hunters. I'm not interested. Lah. But the point is that it's really important to you to make sure that you're correctly paid. What you should do is, if hunters call you, or even you put yourself up for jobs, go and benchmark. 
And the thing is this, until you put yourself out there, you do not know whether or not you're correctly paid in your organization. That's my hindsight, lah, looking back. And I think one of the things that is your strength is that you're very good at networking with people both internally and externally and just balancing all that. How do you do it? It's about authenticity. Right? When I engage with you, I need to be clear about why am I engaging with you? You can call it purposeful. I mean, some people do a lot of socializing and a lot of the socializing, you're, doing, you're not building a relationship. We just meet and then chit chat. I guess for me, I always feel that there has to be a purpose. Of course, you can have fun and all that. I'm not saying you shouldn't have fun, but there is a, a purpose when you meet people and it's the purpose may not be tangible like, oh, I'm going to get something out of it. The purpose could be, I feel good doing it. I'm meeting someone and the person is asking for advice or even not asking for advice, but just a place to just, you know, share his or her feelings, emotions, challenges, whatever. And after the person talk to you, you may not give any advice, but the person feels good. To me, it's about purposeful engagement. And this is a training I got when I was in IBM. It's very funny because when I started my career in sales in IBM, all of us go through a program called the CTSC, Custom Tailored Sales Call. So what custom tailored sales call is, we find that a lot of salespeople, when they go out and meet clients, they will have te tare lah. Then the chicha chicha talk about the weather, talk about the family and all that. And after that, they go back. So they spend two hours, three hours with the client. At the end of it, when they come back to the office, the boss will ask them lah. So what did you achieve today? There was no purpose. I meet, I have drinks and I go back. So the training actually tells us that when I go and meet a client, he's going to spend two, three hours with me. I'm going to spend two, three hours. He's not my brother or my sister or my cousin. This is a client. So when you meet the client, the client also want value from you. You also want value from the client. So when you meet the client, they teach us customer tailored sales call. What is the objective? What are you trying to achieve? At the end of the call, did you meet your objective? Let's say you're meeting someone, business associate. There has to be a purpose. What is that purpose? And I guess over time, I no longer think about it as intuitive. For a lot of people who are not at that CEO level yet, I think their biggest concern will probably be, I really want to speak to the CEO, but I don't know what kind of value I could possibly bring to the table. The how is that today, I think women are very fortunate because we have so many platforms. For example, they can sign up with lead women. I remember at one point, ICAEW have got this woman leadership program. And then they have LinkedIn. And then different, different companies like Monash University Alumni, uh, Maxis Women Network. First of all, many organizations actually have a woman uh, development program. Then they have got kind of public ones like lead women, ICAW Women Leadership, like LinkedIn. So if you want to build a community and you want to be able to listen or learn from those people who are experienced, these are very good platforms to go on. Of course, we can go online, get lots of information online, but we can also do that. So that's the how. Now, the what is not so important at this point. Let's say, for example, if I'm a young woman leader and I am not sure what I bring to the table, it's okay. You don't have to bring anything, right? In many of these programs, they assume that you are going into the program to learn, not to give. You're not yet giving. So I know of many young women leaders, they feel like they've learned and they want to share. On their own, they could also set up small communities and each of these small communities could be younger or less experienced than them. And these people can actually learn from them. I call it the multiplying effect that if you, in your mind, you actually want to help, whatever you learn, you can share. And today, it's so easy to share because even if you don't have an audience, we just put on LinkedIn your experience, people read, and they ask you questions. At IBM, they always say reinvention is part of our DNA. And when you were at IBM, that was the heart of them really just going through a lot of changes from hardware to really going to cloud computing to AI. But at the same time, there was the challenge of IBM being this big ship. And so 
turnover was really, really difficult. So I wonder if you could share a bit about the challenges that you had being at the head of this big ship that was going through these transitions. See, IBM has been undergoing changes continuously. It's not just the last few years. From day one, I joined IBM. IBM has been reinventing itself. The last hundred years, IBM was going through something called a market-driven transformation. They call it MDT. So after going through the MDT, I was very frustrated because I still felt IBM was so slow and cumbersome. So I remember I went to see this MD and I said to him, I don't understand. You put everybody through this MDT, you change our minds and everybody look at things differently, but still so slow to get things done. I, I don't understand. Why is it not moving faster? Let me give you an analogy. Says, you are on this huge ship, luxurious cruiser, and you have got three cinemas, you've got three casinos, you've got 10 restaurants, you've got three swimming pools. It's a huge ship. But you see, it's... A luxurious ship. Now, the ship wants to turn. So to turn, they have to go off tension and then slowly turn because it's big. So you have to ask yourself this question. Is your choice? Do you want to be on this huge luxurious liner, enjoy all the luxuries of such a place? Or do you want to be on a speedboat? If you are on a speedboat under the hot sun, you're moving very fast because it's a small boat. It is your choice. Do you want to turn fast? You have to be on the speedboat. You want to be on a luxurious cruiser and enjoy all the perks and benefits of such uh, environment, it is slow to turn. So along the years, I encounter inflection points of the company's journey. Every three, four years, we encounter these changes. And every time the change has to happen, it is so painful because it is really trying to get a huge ship, a whole group of people, trying to explain to them, trying to get the buy-in trying to get a mindset change. And then you've got to put all the processes, the procedures, the systems in place to change it. So for example, our salespeople have a very complex sales plan. To pay commission to a salesperson, because depending on where you want them to focus, you pay them differently. Just to pay people, the sales plan is a huge thing. All the way from among US, they cascade down. So even to change the sales plan takes a long time and a lot of effort to change. Now, when you change it, People who are used to the old sales plan don't like the new sales plan. So they complain, they complain, they complain. Some even leave the company. I don't like your sales plan, I leave because you're not paying me commission the way I think I should be paid and all that. So you go through all that. And then that's only one part of it. That's internal. Then external, clients, same thing. Oh, 20 years I work with IBM like that. I don't need to sign this thing. Now after 20 years, you want me to sign? You know, I don't want to sign this thing. Whatever. Lah, you know? So it is really like uh, inside, outside, you know, there are certain perceptions of the company internally and externally. Whether you are a senior leader or you are the MD of the company, you have to do a lot of communication, a lot of buying in, trying to get people to see why it is beneficial. You retired early and I was wondering if you could share the thought process behind that decision and your plans for the future, if you will. I call it slowing down to the pace of life. I think I've always been on an accelerated path all my life. So when I hit the first sabbatical, some realization happened. I'm like, hey, there's more to life than my job. I say, I'm not my job. Then the second sabbatical came and I found more meaning, more purpose, and I could do more things because I learned from the first sabbatical test phases of early retirement. And then, of course, when I became an MD, I felt like I've achieved what I wanted to achieve in my career. And I felt that what would the next phase be like? So I thought about it. I said, okay, so after I've done this, if I leave the company at the top in the country, the only place for me to go is go regional. I can go to ASEAN or Asia Pacific or whatever. And I have done those jobs before. I can travel to three countries. And is that what I want to do? Then I thought really about after 30 over years of working, do I really want to do something else? When I was an MD of IBM, I was very fortunate because 
many women leaders and even men leaders in the market. In the market, people I don't know actually approach me and embrace me, take me under their wings, introduce me to many people, give me opportunities to play a role in organizations, engagements with many of these leaders. Told me that number one, there is a big world out there. I encountered this really iconic woman leader in the market. So one day uh, I went for an event. So she came to me and immediately she gave me a big hug. And then she says, we want you to be successful. You are visible. You took on a role that uh, no woman has done before. And we want you to be successful. I don't know the person. Imagine somebody in a crowd coming to you and somebody very iconic hug you and say that we want you to be successful. Can you imagine that? It's amazing. It's like, and this is only one encounter. Subsequently, I get calls from many different leaders, different organizations, and everyone is coming to you and say, we want you to be successful. I don't know what I did to deserve such support, but I got tremendous support. Tremendous. Men, women, a lot of women leaders actually came to me and said that we want you to do well, we want to be successful. Every one of them taught me something. After a few years, I thought to myself, what's next for me? Along with all this network came opportunities, CEO positions. A lot of people came and said, hey, would you like to run this, would you like to run that? And then a few bots came, would you like to be on the board and all that? So then I thought about it and I say, if I remain where I am in my current job, it'd probably be more of the same. Yes, to inspire people. Yes, to run the business. But what can I do that would bring me to a different place, meet new people, maybe opportunity to reach out to more people? So I decided that I will retire early. And the last two and a half years, I will tell you, was tremendous. I thought I left the workforce, I'll be sitting down doing nothing. But honestly, the last two and a half years, it has been a non-stop learning. I'm learning and learning and learning, meeting new people, adapting to new cultures, looking and observing how experienced people work. I know, and on the board, you meet so many talented corporate leaders, government leaders, all sorts of people you meet. It's amazing. The amount of learning was just tremendous. And honestly, these are people who have been there, done that. they got so much to share. So I look back with no regrets. I think I did the right thing, retiring when I did. I mean, what can I say? There's a lot more to learn. And I'm just so excited doing what I'm doing. So do you feel like you have found your why? Okay, I'll be very honest with you, okay? I never asked that question. It's not the destination. Life is about your journey. It's not about the end and the destination. So when I think about the why, it appears like a destination to me. Throughout my career, throughout my life, I ask a lot of why questions. But I realized that there are many small whys, not one why. I call it a composition. It is many, many whys along the way. Why do you take a sabbatical? I could answer that why. Or why do you decide to retire early? So I could answer small whys. But the big why about, did I achieve my life's why? I can't think of that why. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think if I look back, one of the things that I really feel happy about is that I think that I have impacted people that I met in a positive way. And I believe that in my entire career, I have helped some people achieve their potential. When you hear people telling you that you have made an impact to my life uh, positively, you have helped me overcome some challenges, you have helped me see you have helped me. Uh, you have helped me see the light, uh, or help me help open my mind to new opportunities. I mean, to me, that is my legacy: making an impact, making a difference to the lives of people you touch. Maybe in a very small way. No, may not be big impact, but even if it's a small impact, and that is really, you know, the kind of uh, happiness I get when I get feedback from people. And sometimes some people come back. Like, like I explained to sometimes 10 years, sometimes 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, someone comes to me and said, 20 years ago, you said this to me. 
and actually made me realize certain things. I think it's again the multiplying effect where you learn something, you impart, then you learn, and then you impart. And then all these things that you do cumulatively made a positive difference generally. And to the individual that you make that difference to, it has impacted their lives positively. I don't know if I will call it a legacy, but it's what gives me that sense of purpose that I have progressively achieved some of this purpose rather than the word legacy. Legacy seems so big, but purpose seems more bite-sized. And what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? I think you have to really be clear about your values and whatever you do, it has to align back to your values. Drive, we talk about resilience, we talk about persistence. They all form part of that work attitude. But some of these things are very important qualities that you must have. As an individual, when you commit to something, you got to make sure you deliver it. So reliability. When you encounter challenges, you got to be uh, resilient and try to overcome them. Don't give up too easily. When you are challenged with situations that are against your values, you got to walk away and not do something that is uh, against your values. Plus, in addition to all that, it's also the people aspect. You must have the heart for the people. Right? If you are, if you only think about your own success, ensuring that only you move up in your career or your organization, you'll never make it. Because the success of a leader, as you move up higher and higher, depends more and more on the people. A leader is not a leader if you have no followers. The people in your organization don't support you. Will you ever be successful? You'll never be successful. So leaders who are successful are leaders who ensure that when they are successful, they bring their, their team and the people who support them up with them. Not just they themselves going up, but the people supporting them and their team move up. Where can people go to connect with you and support you? I go to LinkedIn to support a lot of people. I don't go in every day, but as often as I can and occasionally to provide supporting ideas and all that. I do speak in a few events. So I have people who come to me and connect to me after the event and say, look, you spoke about something. Can we get some thoughts? Uh, as I said, there are a few organizations like Monash University, they have this alumni program. So I guess there are so many ways and social media seems to be the easiest way, a more pervasive way. And that was the end of episode 35. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywife.com forward slash 35. If you want updates on the latest episodes, as well as other fascinating things I find and read about over the course of this week, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter at the show notes link which is sellthismywife.com forward slash 35. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting our second TikToker who also happens to be a mathematician, a drag queen who appeared in season one of Canada's Drag Race and has over 800,000 followers on TikTok and counting where she makes incredibly educational and impactful videos on mathematics. If you want to hear about this queen story, Don't forget to subscribe and see you next Sunday.